It's another blessed opportunity that we have this evening to assemble and to gather for the express purpose of lifting high the nature of God's truth to offer worship unto Him, the one who so richly deserves it. And certainly you and I will also be those that benefit from this worship that you and I offer unto God. As we're assembled this afternoon, you probably have already noted that the title of the lesson will surround the year of our Lord's crucifixion. And for the next few moments, I would invite you to reconsider with me some events from the distant past, focusing the spotlight on the year of His crucifixion and striving to appreciate what it is you can say about the year. What year did He die? As you begin all of that with me, let's first note a few comments from a recent lesson that at least points us to the time of, of the year. You and I studied just a very, very few weeks ago that our Lord was born in the year 5 B.C. and apparently in late September or early October of that year. Now, with that in mind, we can at least from that point begin to springboard several years into the future and come to a consideration about the events surrounding the year of His death and cast a spotlight not only on the particular year but along the way see many interesting characteristics about the death of our Master. It really is, of course, a portion of the greatest story ever told. You and I know that there is no record parallel to the Word of God, and yet Jesus is its central figure. It is He to which the Old Testament looked, and it's He upon which the New Testament is based. Tonight, then, as you and I reflect upon those things, how significant is it to consider His death? Wasn't it Paul who wrote in Romans 5, verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, how thankful we are that He did. In fact, the Hebrew writer would say it like this in Hebrews 2, verse number 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He died for you and me. Might we ask this afternoon, what year did that happen? And what about the events surrounding the consideration of that great, great moment? From the bottom of that slide, why don't we then begin to consider in more detail the year of our Master's death? To do that, let's begin our study like this. At this point, perhaps if you're like me, you've heard many times through the years that Jesus preached for a little over three years. How do we know that? Again, if you're like me, you've heard that said many times, and you've heard me say that many times, but on what basis can you and I as Bible students reach that conclusion? Well, this opening part will hopefully set before us at least one consideration, and it appears to be very strong. Perhaps it will go like this. Isn't it true that you and I know very, very little about the earliest of years of our Master's life in the flesh? Isn't it true that both Matthew and Luke tell us about his birth, but then we know nothing more until he was the age of 12? We know nothing about the intervening years other than the general statements that he was obedient to his parents. In fact, if you look at that slide with me, you'll notice in Luke 2, verses 41 to 52, that's the occasion when his parents took him into Jerusalem and they forgot him, or at least he was inadvertently left behind. But he was already 12 by that time. What about all those other years? And furthermore, after that time, we know nothing until we arrive at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And there he was age 30. The Holy Spirit hasn't seen fit to fill in all the details that probably would be of interest to you and me. 
But suffice it to say, at this point, if we now use his known age in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, that's when he was baptized. And that's when, in fact, he began his public ministry. Given that he was 30, that takes us to the year 26 A.D. Because, again, he was born in 5 B.C. We know the year in which our master began his public ministry. Jesus began to teach in a public way following his baptism the year 26 A.D. It is with that in mind that the bottom parts of that slide come before us. Here's an interesting observation. You and I know that all the while our Savior lived in the flesh, He actually lived beneath the law of Moses. He Himself was a Jew. He Himself was one who thus, in light of pleasing God, should have lived faithfully to those ordinances and those statutes of the law of Moses. And yet you and I know well that beneath that law of Moses... God commanded that those Jews, they were to keep several feasts and observances through the year. One of them was the Feast of Passover, that corresponding Feast of Unleavened Bread. May I say to you then, that is in fact a very good question. How many times do we have record following the events of Luke chapter 3? How many times did Jesus observe the Passover as far as the gospel writers tell us? After all, that might give us a clue then as to how long he preached, for there would have been one Passover gathering each year, one gathering to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread each year. And if the Scriptures give us every single occurrence, we should be able to count then until the time of his death. I've tried to list for you the following observations. The very first occurrence that we have of Jesus following that time and yet observing the Passover is in John chapter 2. You'll notice in verses 13 and following of that chapter, Jesus made His way to Jerusalem. And there He observed that Passover and hence that appears to have been the first time following His actual public ministry's beginning. You and I know that that Passover, of course, occurs in the springtime, so that would have been in the spring of 27 A.D. Jesus Himself at that time would have been 30 years of age, and one of the most notable events that occurred while our Savior, of course, was observing that Passover, this was one of the occasions in which He cleansed the temple. He threw over the money changers' tables. He, drew, he threw out, if you please, or drove out the animals. They were turning the actual temple into a place of merchandise. They were turning the supposed worship of God into basically a money-making business. Our Lord was furious at that. And you'll notice he cleansed that temple. Notice again, he was rather a young man of age 30 when that took place. But as you and I begin to look forward into the remainder of the gospel account records, when did he next observe the Passover? Come with me to John chapter 5, verse 1, only a little over two chapters later. We have another reference on this occasion to his observance of a particular Jewish festival and feast. And given the time of year, it seems strongly that that was, in fact, the Passover. I would again invite you to notice what the events and the circumstances were. This one, probably the most familiar event to you and me, is this is when there was a person at the Bethesda pool in Jerusalem. He wasn't able to get into the water when the angel stirred it, and hence he had been there a long time and never healed. Jesus miraculously healed that man. You'll notice this was then at the, in the spring of 28 A.D. Jesus was 31 years of age. One by one, as we begin to look at the particular observances 
and the considerations touching his matter of these. Look at the next one as we come to the top of this next slide. As you and I look to John chapter 6, verse 4, we find another instance of when Jesus celebrated the Passover. This one, he of course was age 32. It was the spring of 29 A.D. Maybe the most memorable matter that took place here, that interesting scene of the Lord feeding the 5,000 using only a small number of loaves and fishes. At this point, you and I can easily count. We've seen three observances of the Passover, and we know that that took place once per year, and so the Lord's public ministry by this point has lasted from 26 all the way to 29. May I submit to you, as far as the biblical record gives it to us, there was only one more Passover observance. It was the one when He died. At this point, you and I can then appreciate our Lord at the tender age of 33 was put to death on an old Roman cross in the spring of 30 A.D. At this point, at least, based on counting the Passovers, this is the final piece of information. There, of course, would be no need to consider others. But there's much more to be said as the rest of the lesson hopefully will set before us. Having reached that conclusion, or at least looked at it by counting the Passover observances, could we perhaps ask this, are there other pieces of biblical evidence that also point to the same year, that also cast a spotlight on the same time? As we come to this next slide, I believe before we're finished, we'll each readily agree that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence and all of it converges to the conclusion that you and I have already at least stated. We each remember a gentleman named Pilate. He was, of course, a, a, an official who was governor over a portion of the Roman Empire. The New Testament records name him without any question or ambiguity. He was the person before whom Jesus appeared at the time of the Lord's death. You and I know historically that the Jews no longer had the power to put anybody to death. They could not carry out the sentence of capital punishment. It had been taken from them and that rested with Rome. And so even though the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to die, the Jews could not carry out that sentence. They had to take Jesus to a Roman official. And it was before Pilate that the Lord appeared. And Pilate listened more than once to that which Jesus had to say. Sometimes Jesus said relatively little, admittedly. But on another occasion, He said, Pilate asked, what is truth? Jesus affirmed readily what the truth was. That's in John 18, verses 36 and 37. At this point, though, might you and I note this. Records easily exist that detail for us the years of Pilate's reign. He reigned from 26 to 36 A.D. Notice, the very time of our earlier date concerning Jesus' crucifixion was right in the midst of those dates. Pilate was a, ro a ruling Roman official at that time. Might we notice as we come near the bottom of that, isn't it fascinating then to consider even records outside the Bible detail that there was a man named Pilate. It even details a number of characteristics of him that at least seem very similar to those who are described of him in the Word of God. Perhaps in light of those things, you'll note my final comment. Why don't we then think about the years 28 to 33 and see what else the Word of God perhaps would remind us about those years and the death of our Savior. The bottom of that slide, please. 
earlier this evening, we've already made reference to this special Jewish celebration. It was the Passover. Hearkening back from early in the days of the Old Testament, specifically the days of Exodus. But at this point, you and I can ask a host of additional questions about that Passover. After all, what about this? When did the Passover occur? And could that cast an additional piece of information about that year in which our Savior died? It seems as though at the very least the following is of great intrigue. Consider this with me. First, might we notice the Jews, of course, adopted by the nature of God's commandment a calendar that was lunar in its nature. By that I mean they didn't consider the sun as much as the moon in light of determining the months. Now you and I know that, of course, we rely heavily on something besides just a lunar calendar. But the Jews, notice the Old Testament, they were commanded to observe the new moon. When the moon came full, they were to blow some trumpets and they were to observe some other things according to Numbers chapter 10. Hence, they adopted a lunar calendar and that's certainly reasonable given what God had said. Well, let's put the Passover in place. So if the month began when the moon was new, the Jews were told on the 10th day of the month to take a lamb, keep it up until the 14th day and slaughter it even. So, on the 14th day of the month, what phase would the moon have been in? Well, the lunar cycle lasts for a little over 27 days. And so, that's roughly halfway. The moon would have been full at the time of Passover. That's important to remember. That's going to have a bearing on conclusions you and I reach in a moment. The Passover occurred at full moon. With that in mind, look at how the bottom of that slide then sets some ideas before us. In Exodus 12, verses 6 and following, those Jews were commanded to celebrate this Passover, and it was to be a memorial of their exodus out of Egypt. It was to be a reminder of the great way in which God brought them out under the oppression of the Egyptians. Surely, in light of that, notice again, the Bible recognizes that first day of unleavened bread occurring at this, at this same particular matter in time. On to this next slide, notice at the top. Earlier, I asked that we give thought to those years 28 to 33. Let's now use another piece of information that's so very dear to you and me. Jesus, of course, rose from the dead on Sunday. He rose from the dead on that Sunday morning, the first day of the week, but yet He had already affirmed that for three days and three nights He would be in the heart of the earth. He had told that, in fact, back in Matthew chapter 12. He likened it on that occasion to the very words descriptive of Jonah in the same way that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. He himself said, So too shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now the text informs us that he was talking about his own length of time in the grave, if you please. So all you and I have to do is count backward. If we go from Sunday and count backward... That seemingly leaves us with no more than these possibilities. Surely, no matter how you count it, Jesus must have died either on Wednesday, on Thursday, or on Friday. It couldn't have been any, any other day of the week. All you and I now have to do is ask, based on the Hebrew calendar, during those years from 28 to 33, on what day of the week did Passover occur during all of those years? 
Anytime it fell on a Monday or a Tuesday, that could not possibly be the year that our Savior died. The fact is, here's the conclusion when I looked at a set of Hebrew calendars. In the years of our consideration, only in the years of 28, 30, 31, and 33 was the Passover on either a Wednesday, a Thursday, or a Friday. So in the years of both 32 and 29, it was on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Sunday, and that could not possibly have been the year our, G our, our blessed Savior died. Isn't it interesting now, we have narrowed down the consideration additionally to these four years, even from simple considerations of the Passover's occurrence in relation to the moon. What about another consideration, the prophecy of Daniel? That was read in our hearing just a moment ago. In Daniel, the ninth chapter, might I invite you again to notice verse 27, closing verse of Daniel chapter 9. Beginning in verse 24 of that chapter, a number of amazing things had been shared by the greatness of God. Daniel had been told expressly that 70 weeks were determined. One by one, as those weeks counted off, we appreciate that 69 of them had ended. But there was something very special said about the 70th week. Would you note the wording with me? It says, and I'll begin reading in verse 26, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined." And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Isn't it a fascinating thing then to watch the God of heaven reveal hundreds of years of events? And yet as he comes to the 70th week... Something very special about that week. Could I ask you to notice that in the midst of the week, the Messiah was to be cut off. Now you and I know prophetically that that week, of course, was representative of, each one of those days was representative of a year. Given that a week is seven days, half of that are in the midst of the week, and that literally is the Hebrew rendering, that would take us to three and a half so three and a half years, that is to say in the midst of that 70th week, halfway through it, Jesus died. That means if you and I know when to begin the counting of the 70th week, all we have to do is add three and a half years and we'll have the right year that our Savior died. We've already learned when the 70th week began. It began with His public ministry. That was A.D. 26. All we have to do is to add three and a half years from the fall of A.D. 26. That brings us to the spring of A.D. 30. One more piece of evidence seems to point to that very special year. A remarkable set of ideas about that year, in fact. The spring of 30 A.D. The midst of the week. An amazing piece of history that, in fact, pointed to the reality of that moment and that time. At this point, what else might we say? Having looked so far at these events, three and a half years starting from the fall of 26 A.D., perhaps this also was worthy of our observation. 
This one, as I began to appreciate the study of it, I found very interesting. Perhaps you'll find it to be the same. As you and I revisit Leviticus 16, there's a set of events that happen on a special day out of each year for the Jews. We remember that that was the Day of Atonement. It was the day each year it occurred in the seventh month, tenth day, and it was a day on which the high priest could go into the holy place, the most holy place. But not only that, it was a day when a scapegoat was selected. There were two goats. One was selected to be the scapegoat. One was, of course, slaughtered and slain. The scapegoat was released into the wilderness. That only happened one day each year. There's something very intriguing, though, that occurred along with that. Think with me about the Day of Atonement and the lot that went with it. How did they select which goat was the scapegoat and which one was slaughtered? All that the book of Leviticus had said was a lot was cast. That's all. So, by some means, a rock or some lot was cast, and it was then utilized to select which goat was killed and which one was the scapegoat. Over the course of years, the Jews began to use that very interestingly. In fact, keep in mind again when that Day of Atonement occurred. It was in the seventh month. That's the month, of course, you and I would recognize much, much later in the year. We typically would regard that as sometime about August. Sometime about the month of August in your calendar and mine. With that in mind, look at these notes with me. Several of the Jewish writings make record of the following. A stone was used, in fact, two stones. And what would happen is that a white stone and a black stone were put in a bag. The high priest would reach in his hand and take out a stone. If he picked out the white one, that would, of course, mean one particular one of the goats, as previously determined, but the black one would determine the other one. And one by one, one appreciates that that was the circumstance that took place. Historically, you and I would expect that roughly half the time the black stone would be selected and roughly half the time the white one would. It'd be about like flipping a coin. About half the time it would land up heads and half the time it would come up tails. And historically, that's roughly what happened until the year A.D. 30. Now notice in that book known as the Mishnah, the Jews have faithfully recorded how the stone turned up every year. And something very strange began to happen in A.D. 30. In fact, I would ask you to note the following. These Jewish writings, one of which was the Talmud, recorded what came up every year beginning in A.D. 30. Consider the following with me. How would you react if you, someone flipped a coin and it turned up tails 40 consecutive times? Would you begin to be suspicious? Would you begin to think that the coin was not a fair one? Would you begin to think the person was in fact a trickster? Look at the note. Forty consecutive years the stone turned up black, beginning in AD 30. Could I ask you to consider, think of the odds of turning up a coin, tails, 40 times in a row. Statistically, what would the probability of that be? If you work it out on a calculator, it's something like the odds of one in several dozens of millions. And that's what happened. Does that indicate something? What happened in A.D. 30 for which the God of heaven 
would begin to change and bring about these black stones every single year. Obviously, that would mean the last black one would have occurred in A.D. 69. What occurred in the next spring? The destruction of Jerusalem. God, it seems, was sending a message to the Jewish people. A message that was overwhelmingly indicative of the fact that the thing by which any brightness coming out of Judaism was no longer to be found. The great Son of God had died. Favor with God wasn't found through Judaism anymore. It was found through the gospel. It was found through obedience to the truth of Jesus Christ. It would appear that then through those 40 years of one black stone after another, God was affirming and issuing very powerfully the reality that Judaism was no longer the key way to heaven. And not only that, Judaism was going to be destroyed in Jerusalem when the last black stone was turned over. Surely in light of those things, that would tell us amazingly that something dramatic changed in the year A.D. 30. With that in mind, what about another consideration that also points a strong consideration to A.D. 30 and to some of the matters that you and I have been considering this evening? You probably remember that there were some other rather fantastic things that happened at the time that our Savior was crucified. The New Testament gospel records, in fact, point them out to us rather readily. I simply thought that you and I might at least note them because sometimes you hear individuals make statements about them and sometimes those matters are not entirely correct. What about earthquakes? And what about the three hours of darkness? First of all, why don't we think about the earthquakes? You and I know that according to the New Testament, there were several earthquakes that took place the year that Jesus died. For instance, in Matthew 27, verse 51, that was the occasion when right after the Savior had died there on the cross, we remember there was a great earthquake, the text says. And in fact, there were some who came out of the graves in Jerusalem. But that wasn't the only one that year. In Matthew 28, verse number 2, on the morning of the Lord's resurrection again, that boulder wasn't moved away by the women. The text says that an earthquake did it. There was another localized earthquake at the very least. And so notice, here's two earthquakes just a few days apart. Not only that, in Acts 4.31, not too much, long, not too much time later, yet another earthquake. This one after the church had been established, and what a great, great event that was. Maybe in light of all those things, you and I might notice that the God of heaven was in control of those geologic events known as earthquakes. They, in fact, answered to His bidding, and they, He brought them about when that was in tune with the very will of heaven. There have been those through the years, I might suggest, who have tried to look back into the record of earthquakes and try to use them to pinpoint the occasion of the Lord's crucifixion. May I suggest one would have to be a bit cautious because after all, it doesn't necessarily say that all of these earthquakes were global events. It certainly seems the first one was, but not necessarily the middle one. Maybe in light of that, all that we could say is we know that God made those earthquakes and He brought them about at the time when it was in accordance to His will. 
Today, might you and I then think, is it still the case that our God is in control of the affairs of this universe, including the events related to planet Earth? Sure He is. The whole world is in His hand. But perhaps that leads us to the darkness question. You and I know that Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. Nine in the morning, they nailed our precious and sinless Savior to the cross. And for three hours, everything appeared to be normal in terms of the hours of daylight. But then a darkness fell over the land. Not just a temporary darkness, might I say, that lasted a few moments, but a darkness that lasted three hours, starting at noon. May I suggest, as you come near the bottom of that, there have been some who have wondered, what was that darkness? And how could it have occurred and started right in the midst of a day? Could it have been an eclipse? If you have read a number of articles, you might have heard someone almost assert with clarity that this had to be a solar eclipse. Let me suggest it could not have been a solar eclipse. It's impossible. It's physically an impossibility. How do we know? Again, it relates to the time of the month this was. Remember the Passover, which was the very time Jesus died, the moon was full. Isn't it true? Solar eclipses can only occur when the moon is new. Therefore, this could not have been a solar eclipse. It's impossible. You and I know that an eclipse wouldn't have explained it no matter what. Because the longest duration of a solar eclipse is only seven minutes. This lasted three hours. One more time, the God of heaven brought this darkness about, and it was no matter, it was just like an eclipse. It was a statement from the God of heaven of what the human family was doing. They were putting to death the very Messiah. They were putting to death the very one who was the perfect one from heaven. It was He who was the brightness and the greatness of all God's image. Hebrews 1 verses 2 and 3. And yet the human family was killing Him. This darkness was a reminder of what mankind was doing. Have you often thought and wondered about the words of that centurion? When Jesus was dying on the cross, the only words out of that Roman centurion standing nearby is, Truly, this man was the Son of God. What convinced him? He was a Gentile. He was a Roman soldier. How could he have been convinced that this man really was the Son of God? The darkness surely had to be part of it. When he saw darkness in the midst of a day, thick darkness lasting three hours, and it terminated at the very time that man died. Wouldn't that, as well as the earthquake, and as well as the other events that transpired, all of them in correspondence and in harmony, brought to the only reasonable conclusion of that centurion, this man was the Son of God. Jesus died. With that, we come to the bottom of that slide. Our Savior, born in 5 B.C., died in 30 A.D. He died at the Passover time that spring. He, of course, was 33 years of age. What a transforming effect He has made on the entirety of our world, and yea, on the entirety of heaven. For it is He who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What He accomplished dying that springtime, what He accomplished by shedding precious, innocent blood, that blood is what redeems you and me.
cleansing sin, Acts 22, 16, and making it so that you and I can stand pure and whole before the eyes of our Heavenly Father, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Have you been covered by that blood? Are you still covered by it? If you're not, perhaps you've never become a Christian. Why not make that a matter, a part of your history tonight? Come back to the Jesus that loves you. Come to Him tonight if we might be of service to you in that regard. Jesus Himself said that you must believe that He is the Son of God, John 8, 21 to 24. You must repent of your sins. He said that in Luke 13, 5. You must confess Him, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 3. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. Statements like that remind us that this plan of salvation in many ways is easy to understand. It's just a matter of doing it. Tonight, if you need to, to take care of that, we'd be happy to help you. If you have become a Christian, but tonight you're not faithful, there are things in your life that you know you need to change. Don't forget what happened in the spring of 30 A.D. Don't forget who hanged on a cross in your place and in mine. Who took your place, paying the price for your sin and mine. Tonight, if you need to come back to your first love, just like those in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, why not do that? Beseech the prayers of the brethren here at Pippin, and let us go to God on your behalf. God has promised that upon your confession and repentance, He will forgive those sins. Tonight, if there would be anyone in the audience that would have a desire and a need to respond in a public way, we'd be happy to assist you and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.